You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State health officials will begin sending out notices today of a data breach in their vital records division. We talked to Sean Hamamoto, communications director for the state health department yesterday afternoon, about what consumers should know. Records of people who died over a 15-year period between 1998 and 2023 could be affected. On January 23rd, we have a cybersecurity vendor called Mandiant, and they informed, they're the ones that found the breach. So as a result, you know, they notified the Office of Enterprise Technology Services, Office of Homeland Security, and DOH that an external medical certifier account was compromised and the login credentials were placed for sale on the dark web. Upon being notified, DOH immediately disabled the account and began an investigation. The DOH completed its investigation on February 15th of this year and found that the compromised account belonged to a medical certifier at a local hospital who had left employment back in June of 2020. 21, but unfortunately, his account was not deactivated. So that's how the unauthorized individual was able to access the account. And it was reported to us that this unauthorized access occurred January 20th of 2023. Do we know what they might have taken, what type of information they might have sold off? Uh, Yes. Well, it was discovered that approximately 3,400 death records may have been viewed, and these death records had a date of death ranging anywhere from 1998 to 2023, uh, with 90% of those occurring uh, 2014 or earlier. And um, some of the information that were on these death records include the deceased name, social security number, address, date of birth, date of death, and so forth. So that's why out of an abundance of caution, and we are sending out written notification letters to the affected parties, and we are urging affected parties to remain vigilant about any remaining unsettled matters such as, you know, accounts, estate, life insurance claims, or social security survivor benefits. And getting back to the unauthorized viewing of these records, that took place just in January, so not too long ago. But whose kuleana was it to deactivate that account? I mean, it it wasn't someone directly in the Department of Health, correct? It was at a local hospital? Yes. I don't know who specifically deactivated it. I, I would need to get back to you on that. So to be honest, you know, we can't really comment on something that happened. So this happened, I guess, before the new administration got in. But what we can say is that moving forward as a response to this incident, uh, we are in the process of implementing additional security measures for this electronic death registry system account. And in addition, we are also conducting a security review of all of our DOH accounts and making the uh, necessary, you know, adaptions as needed. And on the death certificates, now, uh, I know we had contacted you recently because we had gotten wind that the wait times for the issuance of death certificates was actually much longer than it was during COVID. Uh, So so how Mm -hmm. do you explain, you know, what the backlog is now and how bad did it get? Okay, so what I can tell you is that from the time period of uh, January 1st, 2022 through December 31st, 2022, that year, that there was a total of 14,347 orders for death certificates. Of that number, uh, Department of Health was able to complete 13,000 929. So that leaves 421 uh, pending. And basically why those are still pending is we are still waiting for the cause of death statement from the medical examiner's office. During COVID, Mm -hmm. I know that uh, folks, you know, really were waiting, I think, a couple of weeks uh, that you were processing a lot of those uh, fairly quickly. But we were hearing complaints that, that it was taking as long as two months, three months. Yes, and again, this was last year, right? So again, yeah, I can't really speak to what happened, um, you know, in, in the prior administration. I can just tell you everything that was forwarded us, uh, we we've gotten out. So the only thing that we're waiting on, the only delay now for those 421, is because we're waiting for the uh, cause of death 
statement from the medical examiner's office. Well, how are we doing on staffing? Generally speaking, we have vacancies, you know, um, in many of our departments, but for specifically the vital records department, yeah, I would have to get back to you on the uh, vacancy level for that. Okay. You know, and as soon as we get those cause of death uh, notification from the medical examiners, you know, of course, we will process those death certificates as quickly as we can. I know just in the interim, some of the things that we've done here is uh, to, you know, redeploy certain uh, employees, you know, that sort of thing. I know. Uh, and this will come into play a little bit later, but we are working uh, currently to modernize our system. You know, our system's quite antiquated. I'm not sure how long it goes back, but, you know, that's one project we are working on is to upgrade our uh, computer systems and so forth. Do you think that'll come this year? I think that's our hope that okay. it'll come online as soon as possible, but I would have to get back to you as to a more specific anticipated date. So what's the message that you want to get out to folks who, you know, had a loved one pass during this time period where this information may have been been compromised? The message is that one is to remain vigilant, you know, to keep an eye on your unsettled matters of your deceased, such as, you know, any accounts, estate life insurance claim or social security benefits. And in addition, we do want to assure the public that we are in the process of implementing additional security measures. It wasn't a DOH employee, it was somebody else affiliated with the hospitals? My understanding is that in the investigation, they found, I guess, uh, two IP addresses. One was in Kentucky and the other was in the Netherlands. So that's why Homeland Security was notified because, you know, this was something that occurred that originated outside of, you know, our state lines. We've been hearing from Sean Hamamoto, spokesman for the State Department of Health. He was talking with us about a data breach in the death registry, possibly affecting more than 3,000 people who died in the past 15 years. If you're just joining us, you're tuned to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. And now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. In honor of Women's History Month, we invite you to think about mothers and daughters and how they influence each other professionally. In this case, we're thinking about authors. In 18th century Britain, there was Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women, and her daughter, Mary Shelley, best known for her gothic novel, Frankenstein. The nation's favorite storyteller of childhood pioneer life was Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yet few know that the Little House on the Prairie and the entire series were primarily authored by her daughter, journalist and author Rose Wilder Lane. In Hawaii, we have our own award-winning mother and daughter writers. One mother wrote about wartime trauma of Korean woman in two books, Comfort Woman and Fox Girl. Her daughter won a Newbery Award for a middle grade book for When You Trap a Tiger. For today's Backyard Quiz, what are the names of the local mother and daughter authors? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HPR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com.
Hawaii's ranchers say they need help to stay in business. They can't continue to watch pasture land reduced year after year under state land leases that aren't managed by the Department of Agriculture. A priority is to have some 100,000 acres transferred from the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Two decades ago, lawmakers passed Act 90. It was meant to help ranchers and farmers, but there's been little progress. This week, we talked to three women who know about ranching. Uh, Nicole Galase is the director of the Hawaii Cattlemen's Council. Jerry Moniz is with KK Ranch in Poilo on the Hawaii Island. And Lonnie Petrie is with the Kapapala Ranch in Kau. Raising Hawaii beef is hard work, but they want the public to understand their value in our economy and our aina. Cattle producers say they do far more than just put local beef on the table. Nicole Galase starts us off. Actually, cattle ranching can be a really great way to ensure that the land is being stewarded as well as food is being produced. Ranchers are on the ground doing invasive species removal, keeping open spaces open, keeping water infrastructure going. These are all really important things, important ecosystem services that ranchers provide to the community at no cost to them but the benefit does go to them. Jerry, talk about your situation. In 1990, we took over a a lease of 7,200 acres. And the reason why Act 90 was put into place was um, in 1996, we were told that they were gonna withdraw 2,000 of our acres that we had in production. So it's basically, they were taking away a third of our production. And at that point, we couldn't go back to the person we had the loan with and say, hey, we're only going to give you two-thirds of what we owe you. So we had, I mean, it was a real big economic hardship that we had when they took that land away. We had to take a second mortgage out. My kids were raising 4-H animals at that point, and they were putting aside the money for their college education. We had to borrow the money from them to be able to keep afloat. And so the reason why Act 90 was put into place was to bring those lands that were under DLNR and put them into to Department of Agriculture where the, you know they're more apt to have better terms. lease terms and you know they're more proponents for ag. And, and so step back a second. So why did the state want to take away um, a third of your um, production land? So they took away they took away not only a third of ours but there's several ranchers in a row that they took away land in. So um, they took a total of 5,200 acres right where we're at. What and for? they were doing it for, um, the, they were gonna realign the saddle road to go through um, the military, when wanted to straighten out that road and they were going through uh, 150 acres of critical habitat for the palila bird. And so that to, to mitigate that, they took 10,000 acres out of between our ranches and other ranches around the Mauna Kea area to save the palila bird is what it pretty much came down to. But now you're in a situation where you're a little on shaky ground. Yeah, they took away a a third of our ranch with no compensation, nothing. So we're we're having to pay for the whole loan and stuff with two-thirds of our production that and you know, what kind of business can do that? It's, mm-hmm. It was really difficult. Lonnie, I jump in here. What's your situation um, with your ranch? Kapapala was um, established in 1860. We just celebrated our 163rd anniversary. My family has been there for 46 years of this 163-year le- legacy. Our lease, um, we keep losing land for Forest Reserve, for National Park, and... Um, to tag team on what Jerry is saying is that, you know, we look at environmental impact. We do environmental assessments. But here in the last few decades, the economic impact needs to be uh, a value put on it, too. And, and when you look at what happened to KK Ranch, and similarly, it happens to us. Uh, we're, we participate with the Division of Forestry and Wildlife. We have public hunting for three months out of the year. We've had lands withdrawn for forestry projects. Well, every time land or land's use gets amended or changed, everybody overlooks the economic impact to the ranch itself and remaining viable. And being an economically viable business allows us to have all of the um, conservation services that 
the public doesn't have to pay for. And I, I, I'll mention fires. Uh, we have reservoirs. Uh, we're the early response to wildfires. The most recent one was 2018 in the national park. Our reservoirs were immediate response. Our tractors, our heavy equipment was on job within hours. So if we're not viable, our tractors don't start. You know, if we're not viable, pipes are broken. So you can have all the water you want, but if you can't get it to the fire, what's the point? So what I'm trying to say is that we need to also look at the economics of these lands and what we as ranchers do in stewarding the lands. This is an important conversation, and I think that we are conservationists. You know, we develop water, and we are able to preserve habitat, like uh, Kipuka Key at the National Park. It was our equipment and, and water that serviced the, the, the state's fire rigs and the National Park's fire rigs was from our water. So there's got to be a balance. And we've been advocates of holistic management. And let's, let's evaluate what's our resources out there. You know, are we top-tier conservation? No, because I think the top-tier conservation lands have been withdrawn and rezoned. These lands, the 100,000 acres that we're talking about, is all zoned agriculture, except for very, very few portions. I mean, it's, it's less than 1,000 acres. And the one piece that's the largest is already fenced off. It's coastline, and it's already fenced off away from the agriculture. So we're talking about agricultural lands, but we all, in our lease, it states we should have a conservation plan, and we have for 46 years. If we go and develop water and we need to do some bulldozing or grubbing, it's all with the approval of the DLNR. They approve our conservation plan. Nicole, I guess talk about uh, the reasons why that there's this reluctance to turn this over. Well, our worry is that these lands are staying with the DLNR because there are other purposes for them, but it is not agriculture. Like Lonnie said, these are agricultural lands. They have the infrastructure, they have the people on the ground, they have the livestock on it managing it already. We, we want to make sure that those who are doing agriculture right now and are successful at it are supported for staying in agriculture. There are always going to be competing uses for land, but what we've seen is that the number of acres in pasture over the years is declining. That's not something we can get back easily. Our ranch, KK Ranch, um, you know, you can argue that organized ranching be began like in 1832 when Kamehameha III brought over the vaqueros from California. Well, they put those vaqueros up on Hanai Poi, which is the least that we have. So those original vaqueros were put up there to start cattle ranching. And so, you know, these lands that we're talking about have been in cattle production for you know, hundreds of years. And the lands that they took away from us, they tried to put the palila bird up there. The palila bird didn't, it didn't work. It was a bust. So it went from the palila mitigation area, and now it's called the carbon sequestration area, koa carbon sequestration area. And they're trying to plant koa up there. Well, koa has a hard time growing that high up. And so, you know, they haven't really been successful in doing what they want to do, but they want more land. I'd like to um, mention, too, we agreed to withdrawing or having uh, DOFA, Division of Forestry and Wildlife, withdraw 1,250 acres that was prime COA area. Uh, my dad and then for, uh, that time Forrester 30-plus years ago, we all agreed, this is great. This 1,250 acres, let's see a magnificent COA forest. There was buy-in from everybody. The state built the fence, the ranch got the cattle out, and nothing's happened. And Fif how long ago was that? 33 years ago. Around a decade and a half, it was repurposed to the Kapapala Koa Canoe area. And still, there's never been anything canoe log taken. Um, so, you know, after 33 years, you know, we, we get reluctant to... It, we're land people. We're land stewards. We want to see something. We wanted to see a core forest. We really did. But away. Anything else you want to un underscore, Nicole? I think they said it well, but I think the other thing is that we're talking about the environmental impact. But a really important thing to also bring up is that 
what we don't want to lose is the food production. And there's a misconception that ranchers who send their cattle to the mainland are not contributing to food production in Hawaii. I can 100% tell you that every rancher in this state contributes to local food production. And Jerry and Lonnie are just two examples. There are many more. We've always been asked, why are we sending cattle to the mainland? Why don't we keep them here? And, you know, it's, it's economic. If every single rancher could keep every single cow or every single animal in this state to use, utilize in the state, we would if it was economically viable. But we just cannot. We don't have enough land to, to raise them up. And you don't have feed. Well, we've, we don't right. have the land. We don't mm-hmm. have the feed. So we send our animals off. Every other commodity does that. You know, the coffee sends it off, avocados, um, mac nuts. But for whatever reason, the rancher keeps getting pummeled about this. You know, I don't know why we get singled out for sending our commodity off. But that money stays in the state because we're here. And we use all the that that money. I mean, it goes back into our economy, you know. The, the food issue is huge. We keep talking about lands conservation, this and that, but everybody keeps skipping the food part. You know, our ranch alone and what stays here in state provides a million school lunches. Our ranch could supply East Hawaii for one week. These are the kind of numbers that we do and nobody hears about. When that missile scare happened in 2018, you know, my husband and I very quickly responded to, now how can we get at least this much production this far from home to feed people if we really need to. When the p- pandemic hit, we organized the, the ranchers. I mean, I got to give ranchers and the even the slaughterhouses and stuff credit because we mobilized and we got cattle is or livestock are, is one of those really easy sources of protein that we can we can u- utilize right away. It doesn't have to be fully mature. You yeah. can't mm-hmm. eat a, a, yeah. a green papaya or a... But, but um, a calf, can use, or, yeah. you know, a, a, an adolescent animal has this equivalent nutrition value as a full market size animal. Okay. And so we were able to, uh, I got on the phone, we were able to call ranchers. We got animals donated, the slaughterhouses donated their, their time, and, and we got protein out to the Farm Bureau. We got protein out to the Salvation Army. So we are able to utilize our product and feed people. If we're not there... You know, it'll be really difficult to to feed people if there's an emergency, too, right? right? right. So we need to think about that. And what Jerry's talking about is without a plan. Yeah. Ranchers just just responded without a plan. But now, uh, through the Cattlemen's Council, Farm Bureau, you know, we're trying to develop an emergency plan. So it's orchestrated. Mm -hmm. So if anything happens to this degree again, it's seamless. We've been hearing from Lonnie Petrie of Kapapala Ranch in Kau, which has been operational for 163 years. Also joining us around the table was Jerry Moniz from KK Ranch in Poilo, home to Hawaii's first cowboys, and Nicole Galase, the managing director of the Hawaii Cattlemen's Council. They say a bill to help facilitate the transfer of lands between DLNR to the Agriculture Department has passed the Senate and is on its way to the House. They are hopeful the community understands their struggles to stay viable to produce food for our community. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story today for our reality check that has to do with pigs. Reporter Thomas Heaton wrote the article and is online to discuss the details. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So we're continuing to talk about ag. <laughs> that we are. <laughs> and your story uh, yeah. is about pigs. Yes, yes. So the, the issues don't end at cattle. It uh, extends out to even the smaller uh, livestock. Um, so, yes. Today I've got a story in Civil Beat which really revolves around the hog industry um, but also kind of speaks to a problem that is felt uh, by those who raise hogs and also those who have goats and sheep and uh, small livestock. Um, essentially the problem is is there's a bottleneck that's been there for a long time um, and that is the grisly reality of 
turning our porks, uh, sorry, turning our pigs into pork and turning our um, sheep and goats into meat so that we can actually consume them. And this is a problem that's been felt for a long time um, and there was hope for a solution uh, in asking the state for $4 million to build a slaughterhouse dedicated to small um, ho- small anim- small livestock like hogs and sheep and goats. Um, yeah, and, and we're also currently hearing, there isn't one. Uh, sorry, we're, we're also hearing too about the concern that uh, folks on Maui have with the deer and, you know, they want to be able to uh, slaughter the invasive species to produce meat. Yeah, it speaks to this yeah much larger issue. Um, you know, the 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 deer is another big one. Um, the wild hogs as well. So um, it's it's really a concern. Um, the slaughterhouse that has been in development that my uh, piece kind of looks at is uh, in, would be placed in Kalailoa, and it would be uh, next to the cattle slaughterhouse because currently. While there is hog slaughter um, going on on Oahu, it's relatively infrequent and hog farmers want to be able to up their production so that they can kind of compete with all of the mainland meat that's coming in um, and they can actually have a profitable business because at the moment there's they're having their hogs slaughtered twice twice a month um, and then sheep and goats, they just aren't. They aren't being um, brought into the market because there's no one who will do it for them. Yeah, and I had the opportunity to tour uh, that first plant here on Oahu that was certified many moons ago. Uh, And that does, like you said, does primarily beef. And, you know, in talking to people, you know, where there are other slaughterhouses, you know, the the cattle just want to do cattle, right? Uh, Because it's kind of humbug to switch out uh, the equipment for the small uh, animals. Uh, so you you kind of understand that, but um, I don't know. I mean, how are things going as far as that the bill? Yeah, well, it's 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 certainly it's kind of a chicken and egg issue. The hog farmers say they can't afford to build a slaughterhouse, um, and then the this has been going on for a while. And then lawmakers say, well, this isn't the state's responsibility to pay for this. This is a private sector issue. So the um, some of the hog farmers on Oahu, they rallied together, they brought in bills, they had support from their uh, local legislators, um, and they had a bill in the Senate and they had a bill in the House. Both were killed. Both bills were killed. Uh, the Senate said, nope, this is a private, private sector's problem. And then the House uh, finance chair, uh, Yashimoto, said, okay, um, this isn't, this isn't a bill, this is a CIP request, this is a, a capital improvement project. So he said, go to the person that looks after that. So there is a little bit of hope um, mm-hmm. that this might happen, um, but it's it's whether it will happen, we'll have to wait and see. And you talk um, to but some... But there is certainly demand. You talked to some uh, hog farmers, right, that uh, uh, had their own slaughterhouse. I did, yes. So um, Glenn and Amy Shinsato, they actually had their own slaughterhouse on their own property. Uh, they, they sold everything and retired about six years ago, but they were extremely successful. They sold their pork, really high quality product, to the, some of the best chefs and best restaurants here in Hawaii. And they say, you know, well, you know, we need our hog farmers and our small livestock producers to really get creative. Um, but, you know, it is a big cost, and you know, with with some of these hog farmers in um, Oahu on Oahu, it is really a small operation that they're working with. They're only slaughtering a few per week. Well, I know when we, we talk about food security, uh, it is a bit of a head scratcher because if we want to produce our own meat, uh, we know whether it's venison or lamb or goat or beef um, or pork. Um, yeah, you'd want to be able to uh, do it here, but. Interesting story, but thanks Absolutely. so much. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Visit civilbeat.org to read more of his story. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. 
Hawaii Public Radio is looking to hire a corporate relations associate. If you're experienced in establishing new business support, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Read more about the position at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Application deadline is March 15th. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Last spring, patients began slowly moving into the new Hawaii State Hospital on Oahu's windward side. Construction problems delayed patients moving into the state psychiatric facility for almost a year, and the relocation had to be done in phases. The punch list included replacing fixtures for safety reasons, and, as well as water pressure and fire suppression problems, as well as bathroom drainage issues. We talked to Marion Suji, Deputy Director for Behavioral Health at the State Health Department. She previously, uh, previously served as head of Lanakila Pacific and as Director of Public Safety. Suji says fixes are still ongoing, but that staff and patients are settling in. We continue to work with both DAGs and the contractor in fixing those things. And these are all things that are under warranty. We want a functioning building, right? So, Well, how is that hampered getting services to the patients there? So pretty much we've been able to accommodate it. The contractors, we know when they're going to come in, so we'll divert. We'll use different entrances. We may turn around and instead of using a particular classroom, we'll use other classrooms. So we've been able to accommodate and any of the work that needs to be done. And it's functional, but they still have to work on, I think, the water systems, right? There was concern about the low water pressure and fire suppression system. That, yeah, that's, that's a separate project. So I think that COVID definitely hampered some of the activities. And, you know, because it's a confined space, we're still very careful, you know, with testing and also with staff. But otherwise, programming, we probably aren't as robust as we would like to be because of the workforce shortages. But, I mean, everybody is experiencing that. Give our listeners a snapshot. I mean, the old state hospital and then the new facility. I mean, as far as capacity, how many available beds do we have at this point? We're full. So just so that everybody kind of understands, the state hospital is a complex It's a campus that has six different buildings. So this new facility, Hale Ho'ola, was just a replacement for one of the buildings that was there. So we have a number of other buildings, and two of those buildings right now are under renovation. We need anti-ligature remediation. And what does that mean? So that means that nobody can hang themselves from anything. Could be specialized doorknobs, shower hooks, faucets, anything where somebody could potentially harm themselves. And help us understand this, because you you would think that, you know, for a facility like this, there are certain standards and those kinds of things would be worked out in the design phase. So in the new facility, it's all high tech and all of that was taken into account. But right now we're undergoing remediation for two of the older buildings. And back in the day, those standards, I mean, they were non-existent. Okay, so we're talking a totally different code? Right. And so, what, and I don't even think that they had, like, proper fixtures, right, back then. Can you share what is the administration's plan for the building that you did vacate? You know, uh, you mentioned there were two buildings that are under renovation. So what's right. the idea? What's the thinking, the vision behind how do we repurpose those buildings? As soon as the renovations are completed, we will move the patients that are in two other buildings into those buildings, and we will start remediation with the other two buildings. This is a project that's going to take us, you know, for the next year. Okay, but this is a process of upgrading the current facilities to get them modernized, and then as each building is upgraded, then patients get moved into that new space. Correct. 
Is there any thought of, I don't know, accommodating, you know, maybe the the mentally ill that we're uh, seeing out on the streets into that complex there? So there are a couple of different initiatives that we are looking at. And right now, with the way the hospital is configured, we I mean, the inn is full, but we do think that there may be some space for some other alternatives. And what is the capacity of the new building? Right now, it's 277. And every space is taken. Wow. Yes. So if tomorrow the court orders someone to be transferred over to your facility, then what? Well, the intent is never for anybody to stay with us forever. So, I mean, what we're looking to do is work with folks treat them and eventually be able to transition them back out into the community so that they might be able to live in a maybe a group home that's supervised. And what's the snapshot there? I mean, do we have enough spaces available, you know, to make that transition? Basically, what we are looking to do is develop that entire continuum of care. And it starts with crisis. And, you know, we have our crisis lines, we have stabilization beds, and we also have crisis mobile outreach. Teams of folks that will go out and and meet with someone if they're truly in crisis. And then from there, we bring people for treatment. And in some cases, it's residential, it could be hospitalization, it could be outpatient treatment. And then from there, we do have supported living. So we've got different recovery homes. We've got group living that is supported, whether it's with 24-hour supervision, 16- or 8-hour supervision. So we have an array of levels of treatment and supervision. We are hearing that the need is so great, particularly on the neighbor islands. And I don't know how easily, you know, clients are transferred from one island to here on Oahu, where maybe the facilities are. We have facilities on the neighbor islands. I mean, I think all over, we need to expand, and we are working on that right now. Anything else you want to underscore just about where this administration sits and the emphasis on mental health care? I think that this administration is very committed to the mental health care and also finding housing solutions. But we have to remember that not all folks who are houseless are also, you know, have mental health issues and not all folks with mental health issues are homeless, but they are part of our community and we need housing for folks in our communities, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, we always get the nimbyism, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we need for you to do something about folks with mental health, but, well, maybe not in my community. You know, I don't want to have a group home down my block, but these are also, these are our neighbors. And is there anything this session that you've got in play? Yeah, a number of different things that would enable us to expand treatment. And also there's a lot of talk around the um, assisted community treatment, which would be forced treatment. With the assisted community treatment, we're looking at how that act is utilized and kind of evaluating whether or not it needs to be expanded. We have been hearing from Marion Suji, Deputy Director for Behavioral Health at the State Health Department. She says during the height of the pandemic, the staff at the hospital did an excellent job of managing the spread of the virus in the facility. She says like other departments, her division still has challenges with staffing, but she also applauds the work with the Windward Community College uh, to get workforce training programs in place. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. 
Amy Poehler, why do you think it's okay to read other people's journals and sniff through their stuff? I know, it's terrible. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joaquin Phoenix, and he stars. And I'm sorry. Amy Schumer, welcome to Fresh Air. Were you always comfortable talking about sex in front of a microphone? I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. My guest Jay-Z has been incredibly successful as a rapper. You know how a lot of hip-hop artists, when they're on stage, they kind of like grab their crotch? (laughs) Yeah, I have a great explanation for that. Weekdays at 3 p.m. Time now for your backyard quiz answer. We honor Women's History Month, and we focused on mothers and daughters who dedicated their lives to the written word. In many families, professions are handed down from generation to generation, including authors. The novelist Carolyn C. set most of her work in California. Her daughter, Lisa C., who is one-quarter Chinese, has spent her career writing about the lives of women in Asia. You may also be familiar with Anne Patchett, author of State of Wonder. She's the daughter of New York Times bestselling author Jean Ray, who wrote Julie and Romeo. Here in Hawaii, we have our own celebrated daughter and mother authors, Nora Okja Keller, who wrote about the lives of Korean women in World War II and the Korean War. Her daughter, Tay Keller, uh, writes award-winning books for middle school readers. You may remember her. She was a guest on our program in 2020 after the release of her book, When You Trap a Tiger. And that was today's quiz, but we stumped you on that one. No winners. But if you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Vera Zambinelli is the founder and executive director of Hawaii Women in Filmmaking. The program provides a space for Wahine filmmakers to connect and collaborate. It's now accepting applications for the third annual Wahine in Film Lab, an incubator for developing 10 short film ideas into viable projects. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with Zambinelli. What brought me to film and filmmaking uh, was a series of event that happen all together. So I always been uh, a film lover. Um, I, I remember going with my parents to the cinema, so just loving watching film. And then uh, as I was completing my PhD, and uh, I was at the point of dissertation, and I was thinking about research methodology, I came across visual methodologies. And that kind of like get me started in thinking about film, filmmaking for social research. Then, <laughs> I experienced some of the challenges that other women may have experienced entering the film industry. And uh, and so instead of, uh, you know, kind of like let it go, I actually tried to activate the sets of skills and knowledge that I had. And I found that Hawaii Women in Filmmaking as a safe, brave, and open space for me initially, but then also understanding that it was not just me experiencing challenges. So for me and other Vahine that were interested in learning about film and learning about filmmaking and be able to tell their story through film. So what were some of the challenges that you faced as a woman in filmmaking? Some of the challenges is to be credited for the ideas that I brought into the conversation, Um, not being valued as a team member in terms of skills and expertise. It made me really angry, Stephanie, really, really angry. I also want to underscore how this may all sound very anecdotal, like something that happened just to me. But then the more you talk about what happened to women in the workplace or in a situation like mine, you actually realize it's not just me. And then you kind of start seeing like how systemic this occurs. As a matter of fact, if you look at the numbers in terms of, you know, where the women and uh, in the film industry, which also becomes like a labor issue, you know, the numbers didn't have, haven't really improved, not even after the Me Too movement. There are strides. I also want to do acknowledge that. There have been a lot of progress, but still there is a long way to go. And so if we see this in terms of a systemic issues that is not just here in the U.S. or in Hawaii, but then my approach was to provide a place-based local solution. And so I do believe in the power of a community. I do believe in the power of film as a community building vehicle. And yes, and when a group of women come together, magic happens. Yes, I agree. What brought you to Hawaii? Maybe from my 
accent, although I think I don't have any. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Sicily, from Italy. Before moving to Hawaii, I was based in Baltimore, where I was actually in graduate school. And uh, during my studies at Hopkins, I came here to Honolulu for the East-West Center Graduate Conference. And I remember coming here and being like, where am I? <laughs> you know, um, it's uh, when you when you travel through through studies. Uh, sometimes you have actually a very limited view of the place you are in. But just to give you an example, when I was in Baltimore, the most social place on campus was coffee kiosk inside the library, which was in a small corridor. So it was academically very engaging, but socially and personally not so much. And so at a time when I had to reinvent myself, I thought about, you know, where do I actually see myself? And being from Sicily, an island where the water is really important, made me find a very strong connections with Hawaii. I have a background in Japanese studies. Uh, there is a strong Hawaiian culture, local culture to embrace. So it was like a, these intersections of all these um, different interests of mine and, and also in a very specific moment of my life that brought me back here. What is the difference that you're noting about the stories that women want to tell when they come to your organization. Yeah. Um, somehow I want to refrain from generalizations or right. what women's, um, but I feel that sometimes, you know, we also need to think about the tensions of how we see ourselves and how other people see us, and genders does play a very important role in that. Whatever we experience <laughs> is informed by who we are. And so that, I think, also affect the type of stories that, that we want to tell. And our programs, you know, in what we do, you know, there is always this element that we try to underlie, which is tell your story because no one else can tell it, you know, and something that is personal, that is just you. Uh, we don't necessarily support only women telling women's stories, and yet we think that a larger involvement of female cre creatives in the process certainly affect what we actually ended up seeing on screen. So that's also what we are uh, basically trying to do by widening uh, the field, <laughs> you know, and including more female voices. We certainly have a much better and authentic representations rather than just an interpretations of what it means to be a woman. So I understand that you're now accepting applications for the third annual Wahine in Film Lab. It runs from May to October. I believe uh, one person in the Above the Line crew must be from District 5. Can you tell me about this program? It sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Uh, yes, the Vahine in Film Lab, which is now its, its third annual edition, it's a great opportunity for Vahine at all level of experience and ages to be involved in what I call a film school in disguise <laughs> through the process of uh, bi-weekly uh, seminars, one-to-one uh, -one mentorship, uh, seed funding. Uh, what we do, we accept uh, film ideas. So at this point in the terms of applications, it's just an idea. It doesn't have to be fully fleshed, but through the lab, uh, and also in community with a group of people that are really invested in your success, so you'll see how that ideas gets nurtured and grows to become something that you actually may either produce by the end of the lab or apply to get more funding to actually see your film produce your film ideas produce and possibly be a film on a big screen <laughs> to be seen. That sounds amazing. So there's genres in film, right? Detective or, you know, romance or these specific genre types. Mm -hmm. How are women maybe moving beyond this genre or shaping the genre? I would say that actually we receive and uh, nurture old type of films. So the thing is, in this industry, women fares better in what it's called documentary filmmaking rather than narrative, 
but we are happy to share that actually we have 50-50 type of applications because yes, so documentary filmmaking, independent filmmaking tends to be, tend to have more women involved in the process. And even historically here in Hawaii, we have great documentarians. And at the same time, there are a lot of women that are creating new narrative and narrative features. This is a lab for short film ideas, but you know, many times future length documentary or narrative start as a short film and that you kind of get momentums and get you know bigger and bigger. In terms of women in filmmaking, what would make you say, aha, we've changed so that you feel women are moving forward differently? What might be a sign of that to you? A sign would be the amount of funding <laughs> that gets channeled right. into film into film productions. Um, even established filmmakers, the challenge is still there. You know, like and once again, it's interesting how this is not just for women in the film industry, but it's just women in the workplace as a as a whole, oh, right? Yeah. You know, like sometimes you may have all the credentials and still <laughs> someone with yeah, well, less, right? Right. So, um, yeah. So in in the sense of um, or women in Hawaii, I would say. Yes, do support our productions, do go to see our films. And if you ask me what is the dream for Hawaii Women in Filmmaking, it's actually to not exist anymore uh-huh. <laughs> in a certain sense, so that we don't have actually to, to work so hard for gender parity in the industry, which means which has a several implications, because for us it's not a question of whose stories are told, but also who's telling the story. And that was Vera Zambinelli, founder and executive director of Hawaii Women in Filmmaking. She spoke with HBR's Stephanie Hahn about why she believes filmmaking is crucial to gender equity. The third annual Wahinean Film Lab runs this year from May to October. The deadline for applications is March 17th. Tell your story. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we plan to talk about why Hawaii has joined other states in a TikTok investigation. Call our talk back line. Leave your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.